I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Lives of Stonehenge, a new short podcast series from the London Review of Books with me, Rosemary Hill. Over the next four episodes, we're going to be looking at what people have thought about Stonehenge over the past hundred years or so, what it is, what it means, why it matters, and indeed how it's come to matter so much in the story of Britain. I want to ask you as listeners is just if you can imagine you don't know anything about Stonehenge, which won't be difficult because nobody really does know very much about Stonehenge, or at least they know very little that is uncontested. We know where it is. We know that it stands nowadays on a triangle of land about 46.9 acres. And I want you to imagine approaching it across Salisbury Plain, maybe on a sunny day about 400 years ago, so there are no cars, and you're wondering what to make of this vast, peculiar structure. You can obviously go right up to it, you can touch it, you can climb over it, whatever you like. There's no rope keeping you away and there's no ticket booth. And this will help you to get into the frame of mind for our first episode, in which we're looking at what two of our greatest architects, Inigo Jones and John Wood, thought about Stonehenge and how those thoughts in turn were reflected back onto the British landscape and onto our towns and cities. If there's one thing we can say for certain about Stonehenge, it is that it's a piece of architecture. John Summerson, the great architectural historian, in fact called it the soul of architecture laid bare. And what I mean by that is that it's a building aesthetically conceived. Whatever it is, and nobody knows quite what it is, it's not just functional. So to discuss Stonehenge as architecture and the ideas of Wood of Bath and Inigo Jones, I'm joined by the architectural historian Vaughan Hart. He's a Professor Emeritus of Architecture at the University of Bath, and that is very handy because Bath is going to feature quite a lot today, isn't it, Vaughan? It is. And I think what we want to do is outline how important Stonehenge is to 18th century Bath and John Wood's work there, because I think few people understand that Stonehenge actually had a major influence on its planning and its forms. It's extraordinary to think of Jane Austen against the background of a kind of submerged vision of Stonehenge. But before we get to that, we're going to go back a little bit further towards the person who wrote the first ever book on Stonehenge, and that was Inigo Jones. And before that, I want to just think what Inigo Jones might have known about Stonehenge by the time he got there. Because once Stonehenge became of interest to historians, the stories about Stonehenge started. And the first story, and indeed one of the best about Stonehenge, was told by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the middle of the 13th century. And in Geoffrey's version, 
Stonehenge was transported by Merlin from Ireland. It's not clear why it was in Ireland, but it was. And so then it was brought to Salisbury Plain by Merlin. And in Geoffrey of Monmouth's account, we find nearly all the Arthurian legends we have now, the original story of King Lear. And when Geoffrey of Monmouth's book appeared, it got the most frightful reviews with his fellow historians saying, well, this is all ridiculous, just made up. And that made no difference whatsoever to the power of the story, which we still enjoy today. And that really is the whole of the history of Stonehenge, of one person putting forward a theory and six people popping up to contradict it. But the first person to write a whole book, a whole study of Stonehenge, was Inigo Jones in the 17th century. So, Vaughan, tell us about Jones and what was he doing producing this book? Why was he there? Well, Jones is, of course, famous for having introduced into England the rigorous interpretation of the classical language or architecture, that is to say the use of the orders. Before that time, people had certainly used the orders, but not in a way that is uniform and according to proportions that uh, the Roman author Vitruvius records. So he introduces that alongside working on the court mask. And in the court mask, he's also a pioneer. He uh, introduces things that we're now very familiar with, like perspective and the proscenium arch, things we take for granted. He's the first to actually import those from standard practices in Italy and France and put those two skills uh, onto the stage. Um, He's born as a cloth worker in Smithfield in London in 1573. He's appointed the surveyor of works to Prince Henry, who is the eldest child of James I and James VI of Scotland, um, who unfortunately dies very young, which is why we have Charles I, of course. Jones visits Italy famously in 1613 with the second Earl of Arundel, and there um, he sees at first hand the classical language, both in terms of antiquity and the monuments built by the Romans, but also the Renaissance works that the masters in Italy had also constructed. There he meets famously Vincenzo Scamozzi, who is the uh, pupil and partner of Andrea Palladio, and this uh, encounter is often taken by architectural historians as fundamental to the story of English architecture because through this this actual meeting, Jones is almost baptised into the way of building in a Palladian way and comes back and builds in that manner. He's kind of the man who brings the Renaissance to England. And the other thing I think is interesting about Jones is, as you say, it's a story of upward mobility socially, but he's also very concerned when he looks at Stonehenge and he's writing um, his account of it, he's very concerned that architecture itself should be upwardly mobile because, as you say, you know, he's appointed as the surveyor. And a surveyor is not quite the same thing as this idea of an architect, which he's got in Italy. So he has kind of a hidden agenda when he's looking at Stonehenge. But I think we need to think about why, of all things, he's looking at Stonehenge. Well, he turns to Stonehenge on the instruction of the king, James I, who is staying nearby Stonehenge at Wilton House. And Stonehenge obviously caught the king's eye and uh, it's mysterious. He doesn't understand what he's looking at. And so I suppose naturally enough, he turns to his surveyor, uh, Inigo Jones, the royal surveyor, to go and inquire as to what the monument represents and who might have built it. So in 1620, we are told in the surviving book, which is published much later, that Jones and his erstwhile pupil and assistant, John Webb, go to the monument and start to measure it up and survey it. And from that, we understand that some notes were made. And from those notes, then, a book is produced after Jones's death, three years later, and is published in Jones's name. 
And in that book, it's divided into two parts, but in that book, um, the first half is about Jones's understanding of other theories of Stonehenge and who might have built it, and he concludes that it's built by the Romans. He rejects Geoffrey Monmouth's story that you just outlined, oh, Rosemary, and that uh, he doesn't go with any magical ideas. He goes with a more practical idea that it was possible to construct it using pulleys and that the Romans, as famous builders, are the most likely constructors. And it's convenient for him to think think of that because his own work of course is based on Roman principles so it's natural that he wants to find a monument that is an antique monument equivalent to the ones in Rome that he'd seen uh, at first hand on English soil to validate the idea that we also had an antiquity and that his work therefore is following on in the footsteps of masters of the past. And this is very similar to what James I or James VI first of all and James I is also arguing that he has a legitimacy as a new monarch based on an antiquity that he's restoring and refounding through ideas of an ancient monarch called Brute uh, and then subsequently King Arthurian uh, mythology. So Jones is mirroring the kind of court mythology by saying that the Romans were the constructors. He has a vested interest in doing it. Well, everyone who looks at Stonehenge has a vested interest at every point. John (laughs) Summerson calls Jones's book um, an intelligent book with a ludicrous conclusion. And of course... Unlike most people who were approaching Stonehenge, if any, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that before James the Sixth and First, and after Geoffrey of Monmouth, who just says, "Well, you know, it's all magic," and everyone either agrees or disagrees, but nobody really bothered with it all that much until James the Sixth and First got Inigo Jones going. But obviously, most people who looked at it had never been to Rome. The curious thing to the initial reader about Jones is that he's been to Rome. He's seen the Colosseum. And how you can have seen the Colosseum and look at Stonehenge and think it's <laughs> Raymond. Um, and part of it is, as I say, is looking for, um, looking for origin myths, isn't it? And that, uh, which is something which goes on all the way through all the theories about Stonehenge, that there should be an origin, a kind of ur-architecture, an or a story for Britain, because Scotland and England have been united under James. So everybody, in one way or another, is looking for a kind of a consistency, a unity. And Jones is going for this idea that Britain can be linked with antiquity. Yes. It's got its own equivalent of all this amazing classical stuff he's just seen. And of course, in order to do this, a lot of bending and stretching of the proportions is required. It it is. And I mean... First of all, I suppose the most fundamental thing which is pointed out at the time is that these monoliths, although they have some degree of proportion to them, are nonetheless somewhat crude. And he idealises Stonehenge into a Roman temple built of the Tuscan order. So uh, he has to overcome the fact it doesn't have any capitals or bases, the actual monoliths themselves. And he says that this is the product of vandalism and the act of weather over many years, somewhat implausibly perhaps, but nonetheless he overcomes that. He's aware, therefore, logically that there is a problem to overcome. And he then, having measured the monument, he then idealises it within a Roman plan, a well-known Roman plan, of the Roman theatre, which is a circle inscribed within 12 triangles. And this duodecagon, he argues, is what then lays out the ground plat of the stones. So he produces what you might call an emblem, something that is enormously potent and is almost an idea building, something that is both real in terms of the actual totally real, I mean, one of the most real buildings in the in England, but at the same time uh, a, a dream building. I mean, yeah. right from 
Jones all the way up to the present, if you go to the solstice, especially the winter solstice, people are obsessed in some cases, but certainly fascinated by the idea of what Stonehenge means, that it's kind of an embodied idea. And in Jones's time, the idea of the theatre, the memory theatre, the idea of the symbolic building was very powerful. I mean, he's right on the cusp, as you were saying. It's this mixture of being very practical about some things. People have said, oh, how could you put up stones like that? Well, he's an architect. He says, I know how you put up stones. I know how you put up the mast of a ship. That's not a mystery. But he's also got this Renaissance idea of the architect as somebody who is trained in many disciplines, including astronomy and also astrology. So it's right on that cusp of the old world of magic and folklore and the new world of art, order, proportion and he's bringing them together. Yes, absolutely. He calls on on that older world in order to explain some aspects of Stonehenge. So he's not against the magical forces, if you like, and indeed he draws on some of those to give the optical illusion in Mask of the king having magical powers. But at the same time, he is looking to the future or he is exhibiting certain uh, understandings that would become the norm in the more scientific era. Uh, And he's between those two worlds very much. It's a truism that everyone's involved in transition but Jones is very much a transitional figure between the world of Elizabethan Magus summed up by a fairly famous character called John Dee whose work he quotes at one point but at the same time he's also explaining the construction of the stones not through Merlin's magic the idea that these stones could be propelled through the air that's obviously ridiculous but rather that the builders originally had the capacity to use winches and that it was perfectly reasonable he argued to construct the massive monoliths using winches because he'd done something very similar at Old St. Paul's Cathedral, the one that burnt down, that Wren's building replaced. He was involved in working on that old building, in refacing it. And this was a huge task. And there he had to use winches, of course. So he's a practical builder at the same time as being an early antiquarian and someone also involved in the Neoplatonism and the magic of the court of the past. Yes, and it all comes together. I mean, the, the pivotal figure who's always in the background, I think, of this discussion of Stonehenge is Isaac Newton with his number theory. And of course, number theory is one thing, geometry is another thing, proportion is another thing, and they all meet in Jones. And one of the things I think is very interesting about Jones's account of Stonehenge is that he says, I mean, first of all, he's very keen to big up architecture. Architecture is not just a trade. It's not just about surveying, though that's very important. But the architect is an artist. And he then, when he's trying to explain about the dates of Stonehenge, he says, well, you can tell how, and going back to what you were saying about St. Paul's, you can tell how old a building is. You can tell that the nave of St. Paul's is of a different date from the chancel just by looking at it. And although, yes, I mean, he says it's an obvious point. We think it's an obvious point. But actually, this was before Aubrey had started to try and define periods of Gothic architecture. This was really the beginning of trying to see historic architecture, trying to define material cultures trying to find the date by the appearance. So, I mean, I think it's in some ways, because of its ludicrous conclusion, it's been slightly underplayed. I mean, the archaeologists all just laugh at Jones's book, but it's fantastically interesting and original, albeit not quite in the way that he intended. Yes, that's that's right. I mean, the book itself is well organised. It has the first part, as I said, 
before deals with the the theories of the past and the various chroniclers who had repeated Geoffrey of Monmouth or elaborated on, on his ideas. In the middle is what he calls an architectonical scheme, which is the geometric ground plat based on the Roman theatre. And then the second half is the description of the emblematic power of that geometry and how important it is that the circles and triangles are diagrams given by God and that uh, platonic geometry is a fundamentally ideal form of ordering for the stones. But he does cast it within the idea of the orders. He sees it as a Tuscan. It's very important that it's the it's the most primitive of the orders. It's the one of the orders that the Romans invented rather than the three Greek ones. And so he starts at the base, if you like, the very bottom order and identifies that with a pristine pure ancient Britain of these Romano-British Britons who'd been sort of civilised by the Romans having conquered Britain and that this ideal society almost had then built Stonehenge in this way and it's distinct from Gothic it is very much distinct as you say the different styles it's a distinction from the Gothic architecture that was much more familiar as the epitome of English architecture all the cathedrals are after all Gothic. Yes and also of course for Jones the problem with Gothic is that it's associated with Roman Catholicism. Yes. Britain at this date is identifying itself very much as a whole and I think it's also important to see where Jones is ideas, which he is spelling out in his book on Stonehenge, but where, I mean, his plan for Whitehall Palace has the triangles, it has the circles. Yes, yes. And he designed the scheme for the banqueting hall um, yes. in Whitehall is the most famous surviving part yeah. of that scheme. And the plan for the ceiling, Reuben's great ceiling, which has James VI and first enthroned in this great circle, you can see there the same idea of using a geometry which is both architectural, architectonic, but also divinely inspired. Yes, absolutely. And throughout his work, you can see the use of fundamental Platonic and Euclidean forms like the circle and the triangle. And other historians have noticed, therefore, and pointed out the fact that if you, um, one of the plans for Whitehall, and this is purely in plan form. It was never constructed. The banqueting house is thought to be the only fragment of this dream of a larger palace that would have rivaled the Escorial that Charles I um, so wants, dreams of. And that this plan could fit within a circle and that uh, an equilateral triangle projected along the base of that lines up with points to the altar. So an ordering of circles and triangles, therefore, is used within the plan. And the early scheme not constructed for St. Paul's Cathedral also can be subscribed within a circle and triangle. So the use of these forms it runs through his work. And you can certainly see that as being a reflection of the Stonehenge origins for his own work and how important Stonehenge is to him as a surviving legacy of a once great Britain that had had this Roman teaching and education when there were proper architects that he sees himself as for the first time in countless centuries constructing in the same tradition. So that's the important thing. Yes and of course I think it's really remarkable to think that having established in his own mind this primal Tuscan order of kind of rude simplicity, it turns into, which people will be very familiar with, Covent Garden in London. Yes, yes. Um, and that is just extraordinary because Covent Garden, the Duke of Bedford was developing it. He bought the land. He had to build, for what we would now, I suppose, call planning gain, he had to build a church, he promised mm. to build a church. <laughs> and Inigo Jones was the architect of the piazza. And the piazza, the square, was a totally new thing in Britain. 
Yes. And if you think about London, it was all just those higgledy-piggledy streets with the omen, very charming, though, of course, a terrific fire hazard, (laughs) as everyone found out quite soon afterwards, those great leaning-in, overflying upper stories. Jones created a piazza, and then for the church, which the Duke of Bedford was very, very concerned about not being expensive. That was his main thing. It had to be cheap. And it was the first new... Anglican church built in London since the Reformation. So this is perfect for Jones. He wants to establish the Ur architecture in this completely original way. And so he builds what he calls the finest barn in England. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, he'd seen squares when he was travelling through, for example, Italy. He'd also been to France, but um, he'd seen squares like Livorno. So it wasn't a a new form from that point of view. But the imposition, quite right, and the imposition of a geometric whole that the Covent Garden's we can see it today, represents, and to some extent it still represents uh, an imposition of order on a a street system around it, which is somewhat chaotic. The imposition of that is a totally new thing, and that is a form of geometry which has some relationship with Stonehenge as an ideal. But the most fundamental and striking thing is obviously the Tuscan order where the false porticos put on the doors actually round the other side but because of the arrangement of the perspective the altar has to be on the east side of course and that's what the side that's facing into the square so there's this false portico put on in the Tuscan order which reflects this idea of the barn and I mean it has to be said building a Tuscan column probably costs about the same as building a Corinthian one so it's more than although he makes the big deal about the fact that he's built this handsome barn he really wants it to be a barn it's not just because it's saving money it's because the barn idea of the Tuscan is translated in a very pure way in this very first church well like most architects of course he will have told Bedford that this was cheaper because architects um, (laughs) as he did at Stonehenge with his book I mean they start off with what they're going to do anyway and then retrospectively justify it to the client or fit the measurements to Stonehenge or whatever it is they're going to do and St Paul's Gone Garden I mean appropriately of course now known as the Actors' Church because Jones himself was a great theatre designer and designer of masks and so on, with these great overhanging eaves and massive, massive columns. And it's still, although the buildings that he designed to go around the piazza are long gone and the piazza's very busy now and it's all got stalls in the middle, but still that, as you say, false portico, it, it dominates it does dominate. And I mean, most visitors, this is true also of Bath, which we'll come on to, but visiting there would never dream that Stonehenge had anything to do with the layout or an idea of the original planning of that, and that the Tuscan had a relationship to an imaginary Roman building mapped onto Stonehenge by Jones. So that connection is something that is lost. But in fact, as others have pointed out, not least Somerson, the birth of English town planning at Covent Garden, and that then rumbles through Bath of course, directly, and goes on to Edinburgh, is indebted enormously to the idea of Stonehenge on Salisbury Plain. So. It's extraordinary how that carries on all yes. the way through the 20th century when Stirling and Gowan were asked to design Churchill College at Cambridge. James Stirling said, well, you, you don't know what to do. You just think in terms of if you've got an empty space like that and you've got to create a big building. And he immediately referenced Stonehenge and talked about a sense of Neoplatonic geometry. So they're still (laughs) thinking like that. But we must come on to Bath. I mean, for Jones, one problem he didn't have in trying to fit his pre-existing ideas into this prehistoric 
monument. He wasn't terribly bothered about whether it was Christian or not. He sort of says, oh, well, you could compare it with Solomon's Temple, I suppose, yeah. and then moves swiftly on. But yeah. for our next architectural hero on Salisbury Plain, John Wood, of course, that mattered a lot. And it's with Wood that we come to another great leap forward in town planning and also the first real kind of entry of the Druids, who never go away, much to the fury of archaeologists ever after. <laughs> but anyway, tell us about tell us about Wood. I know your yes, I mean your Wood, favorites. Wood, yes, absolutely. And I mean, having lived in Bath for so long, Wood is uh, close to my heart. Wood is an interesting character because he's very different to not least because he's very different to Jones. He's a um, not a court architect. His work set is... us a bit in time. How much later are we on? Okay, so Wood the Elder is born in 1704 near right. Bath in, in, in Tiverton and uh, worked mainly in Bath. He does work in his early years in Yorkshire, but most of his work is prescribed around Bath and, and Bristol. So he's more provincial in that sense than uh, Jones, much more. And he is not a court architect. His work is sponsored by private developers. His contribution lies in introducing the idea of speculative building in Bath and then obviously later on taken up in London as a means to build cities effectively uh, and the means to fund them where before the pattern had been very much the aristocracy or the, in particular the church or the court. So he's working with more private developers in building baths and he, he of course introduces the four urban forms of square, circus and crescent to Bath which then eventually is then taken on in later places like Edinburgh. I think we have to bear in mind that because we've all got all those Jane Austen adaptations in mind that Bath... When Wood was starting out, Bath was, well, literally a yeah. backwater. Yeah. I mean, the spa was in a terrible state. Yes. People were caught dumping dead animals in the Roman baths. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a bit of, yes. let's be blunt, it was a bit of a slum. Yes. And Wood's enthusiasm for his theories goes hand in hand all the time with his enthusiasm for his hometown. Yeah. But his theories, I mean, unlike Jones, who only wrote the one book, Wood wrote a great deal about his theories about the past, about the history of Bath, about the history of Bath's mythical king, Bladud. And again, here there's a huge row because Stukely, William Stukely, the antiquary, who we will talk about in another episode, but he had written very sort of sneeringly about the builders of Bath, about Bath itself, and about Bladud, who he said was just a kind of made-up mythical figure. Yes. And actually, Bladud was key to Wood's vision of the Druids, of the history of Bath. Tell us, yeah. Yes. So, so Bladard is a curious character. There is obviously some evidence for Bladard through, again, Geoffrey of Monmouth. And Geoffrey records the idea. call that evidence. Well, no, but also <laughs> picked up then in Bath itself in Wood's day. So Wood is not inventing the connection between Bladard and Bath because no. there are, uh, there's a statue, for example, in the in the Baths to Bladard and there are a number of street names also to Bladard. So he's sort of building on a local tradition, if you like. But he takes Bladard. And what he's looking for is a connection with the biblical history and in particular Solomon's Temple. And he takes Bladard as the key character for the founding of Bath as identified in Geoffrey of Monmouth's Chronicles and he identifies Bath with a place called Troy Novant which is an ancient capital that Geoffrey of Monmouth describes that Bladard is meant to have constructed and he sees Bath as a, a capital of, of England with Bladard as its king and Bladard apparently could fly according to Geoffrey of Monmouth. Of course he could. And, of course and that's actually how he dies because he is too ambitious um, in the Icarus model but Wood comes along and identifies Bladard with a priest of the sun called Aberis. And 
the two are fused, and he does this in order to allow the bladdered character to travel to the Holy Land, because legend had it that Abaris had also travelled to the Holy Land, and witnessed the building of the Second Temple of Jerusalem. And in the process of witnessing the temple, of course, he'd picked up the idea of the orders and how to build in a classical manner. He'd been taught by Pythagoras, of all people, and armed with all this knowledge, Abaris' character had come back to Bath and had become an archdruid and instructed the druid community there in the ways of Pythagorean numerology. And Bath, in Wood's mind, is this ancient capital of learning, large metropolis, much, much bigger than the existing remains of, of Bath itself, which, practically speaking, was a, a walled town. It had been Roman, and he sort of understood that, but it was uh, defined by a wall that lay around its precinct and, incidentally, was controlled by the corporation, which was a bane in his uh, existence because they were very protective about building within the city walls and therefore he develops land outside the walls. In one sense, of course, it's a very familiar story of a developer and the local authority um, at loggerheads, but in most ways, very unfamiliar story. And of course, he does have this problem that was not a problem for Jones. I mean, Jones has to work out how to fit it in with classical um, architecture, but for Wood, with his, his need, which was actually, I mean, by this stage in the 18th century, felt quite strongly the Georgians identified themselves to some extent with the Israelites and it was important to think that the orders were not Vitruvian, they were not pagan, that they had all been found in Solomon's temple and what Wood refers to as the plagiarism of of the classical civilizations. They take them. So, I mean, he has to write at very great length to get all these things to kind of line up. Yes, Um, yes. And also, of course, the thing about the Druids is that very, very, very little about, certainly about the Druids in Britain, was ever said. And this tiny remark of Caesar's, which is that the Druids in France, which of course is the enemy at the moment, went to England to to be educated, basically. And this is absolutely meat and drink to Wood, Yes. who then, having decided that all the Druids came to Britain to be educated decided that, I mean, it's very difficult when you're reading it all. It's a bit like reading Lord of the Rings. You know, you have to take the initial step. (laughs) And once you're in Middle Earth, everything makes sense. Mm. And so one of the things that makes sense when you're there is that Stanton drew a stone circle not far from Bath. That was the university for the Druids. Yes, that's right. And he went to measure Stanton drew as he went to measure Stonehenge. So he's walking in the footsteps of wood and he measures both of those pretty fundamentally to his later work. But um, he sees Stanton Drew as a diagram of the Pythagorean planetary universe and uh, he identifies in the measurements how that that would work. So he kind of finds evidence, just like Jones had done, for a kind of theory that he necessarily develops. And from a practical point of view, the although it's mad in a sense, the mythology has a that he invents, the story he invents, has a, a utilitarian purpose. And it has two main, main branches of that idea. The first is that, of course, it allows him to identify with the biblical history and the idea that the orders were God-given and, as you say, weren't plagiarised by the heathens, by Vitruvius, the Roman writer, and the Romans being 
being pagan. That's a big problem. So he manages to make this connection between the biblical paradigm of the Solomon's Temple and his own work. And then secondly, what he's doing is defying the existing city order, defined by the city walls, in building these square circuses and crescents. There, You visit Bath now, and I mean, it's just another city. You can go through the old medieval town, and you see yourself going through then, you, you would experience this idea of going then into these large geometric rooms, effectively outdoor rooms, which are the Georgian city we so love. But that is a scale contradiction, and he overcomes that in his mind through the argument that Bath had once been a great metropolis, and it was a huge city. He says it was bigger than Babylon, believe it or not, and that it went from Wookie Hole as one of its corners down to Stanton Drew and then across to Bath. So you've got the source of the Bath Stone in one sense, the source of the river Wookie Hole, and then Stanton Drew, and that they're the cornerstones of this great triangular city, and the scale of that allows for it. Yes, and he'd started off, of course, like most of his contemporaries in building an architecture as a neoclassicist. Um, and then, of course, encountering the problem of paganism has to go back further. Yes. And underneath, I think I'm right in saying that what he found under the ground plan of the existing city, at yeah. least in his mind, was the Ankh, the, the cross yes. with the loop at the top. Yes. And so this deep, deep hieroglyph. And it's yes. I think it's something that we're going to see throughout the series of podcasts that people, again, they believe that in Stonehenge, something emblematic is built into the actual fabric, into the ground. Yeah. And that was what Wood came to believe about Bath, that he wasn't really constructing anything. He was reconstructing yeah, something that was already yeah. imminent in the land. Yeah, and it had been there before. And he confronted by the idea of uh, newness, if you like. Um, he has an authenticity problem in the same way that James I had, mm. and to some extent Jones. So he does what architects tend to do in that situation. They, they invent a past, and they, he looked around for evidence. And not far from Bath are these two great ancient remains and with a sense of order about them. So once again, he therefore goes and measures them with his, his son, also called John Wood. And it's important to to say that his construction is different to Jones's. It's a, again, it has to be a circle, but it's got a crescent within the diagram, which is interesting because it's exactly what he then goes on to build in, in Bath. Yeah. But also because Jones is a Unitarian, which yeah. means he doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ. So yeah. where... Inigo Jones has an equilateral triangle. Yes. Um, Wood can allow himself an isosceles <laughs> yes. because um, he only has to have two. Yes. Um, and all those, I mean, it is true universally that if you want to establish a really new idea in a culture, the most important thing to do is to give it a backstory and explain that this is actually not only old, but it's original, it's fundamental. Yeah. So yeah. like the Tuscan order, like um, James VI and I in enthroning himself in the banqueting hall ce yeah. um, ceiling as this kind of Ur king descended from brute, Wood is doing sort of the same thing. You've alluded to it once or twice, but I think we really need to spell out for people yes. that basically in town planning, since Jones invented the square, yeah. nothing had happened. I mean, there have been other squares, yeah. but there were no great innovations until 
Wood finally, after all these struggles with local authority and one thing and another, began to build the circus. Yeah. The yeah. first ever. Yes. And in terms of also city development, Bath is extraordinary because it goes from being, a, in a relatively short period of time in the 18th century, goes from a, a small court holiday town defined by its walls and its its bars and the reason for its expansion, of course, the water and people visiting it in a uh, very limited way. So it's a very artificial town at that, going from that to quite a large, almost city. I mean, you know, it hasn't mm. expanded much more now than what it was when Wood had finished. So its expansion is, is large and over a short period of time rapid, but that is relatively unprecedented. I mean, it's a, it's a post-agrarian city in that sense. So Wood is inventing something that then has massive repercussions and influence for the development of towns like Edinburgh and indeed London itself. Well, yes, I mean, the first circus in London is George Dance's St George's Circus. Yeah. But of course, the most famous is Piccadilly Circus. Yes. And people were astonished and they even more astonished by the fact that not only do you have this circle of building, but it is covered for those who I mean the great rule of architectural history always look up yes. and if you look up in Bath I mean even today and you know this better than I but if you go to Bath with somebody yeah. who's not familiar with it and they're just walking along and you say look up yes. and they go whoa because there's all these huge acorns <laughs> yeah. on the top yes yes well that's right and I mean as we said at the start I mean if you go to Bath as a visitor you have no inclination no idea that Bath actually has any relationship to Stonehenge and one's struck by the rationality of the forms the square the circle the crescent they're fundamentally rational geometric uh, forms but in fact the iconography in Bath the actual stone carving in the metope panels around the circus at the Doric level, which is the base level, reflect this idea of an ancient utopia that Wood has with little uh, emblems, which are copied from emblem books from the Renaissance, but nonetheless emblems of acorns, druid acorns, um, of uh, great fields of great um, uh, fecundity, um, symbols of the university idea with knowledge and learning, and then the acorns at the top, which reflect the idea of the druids being men of oak. And he does this curious thing of having the three orders so that all the facades reflect this idea of the Tuscan, then the Doric, then the Corinthian. Yeah. But unlike most architects, though Jones is an exception to this, and I would admire Jones, so maybe he was thinking of him, this was what Jones himself had intended to do, that they're all the same height. Yes. Whereas yes. normally on a facade, um, yeah. proportion diminish. Mm. means that they diminish. Yeah. Um, so he's built that in. Yes. He's got the emblems. Yes. And this is all art, order, proportion. And then on the top, these stalking great acorns. Yes, well, that, that's right. And, I mean, there was a legend also in his own story that Bladard had discovered the baths because he'd become a, a swineherd. And uh, there was a sort of logical explanation to the discovery of the waters involved in this, where, um, as a swineherd, he developed leprosy. And he noticed that the pigs are quite close to human beings and also had the leprosy. And he was banished as a prince. This is part of the story. Um, and that, Yeah, and the pigs had gone into the water and been cured. So uh, so the prince then went into the water and also was cured. So this is part of his story, a background to Bath, and the acorns can also be seen to allude to that. But there's another um, striking coincidence between the circus and Stonehenge, which is the diameter, which, um, as he measured it, he argued that it was about 218, 219 feet. And that's 
very close to the diameter of the of the circle within the circus, 60 uh, Hebrew cubits. So that coincidence itself, I mean, you just, I mean, it's extraordinary that an, an, a, a remote monument would be used to configure something we regard in, in such terms, such rational terms. But nonetheless, yes. there is a there is a direct relationship between well, the two. Of course, the Bible is full of measurements of Solomon's temple, but yeah. they are all in Hebrew cubits. Yeah. And nobody really knows exactly what, how long a Hebrew cubit was. And many yes. people, um, not just the architects, but the numerologists and the neo-pagan, many, many people have found measurements at Stonehenge, which magically, yes. coincidentally, as you kindly put it, um, <laughs> uh, match what they were hoping to find when they set off. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, he's in the time of Newton, and Newton's fascinated by the Hebrew cubit, as he is with the chronology of the ancients generally. And he's in uh, tradition stemming from, to some extent, Wren, uh, a continental architect called Fischer von Erlach, who had tried to regularise history, both the pagan history and the biblical history, and to produce a chronology of architectural history that would match that rationale, that logic. And so Wood is, to some extent, a rational thinker and is picking up on that work. Um, and he's again, he's like Jones, he's split between the two, the legendary side of things and also then the, the rational. But he's out of his time because increasingly the rational is taking over and he's, he's uh, almost a contemporary of Inigo Jones in terms of his thinking. It's true, but uh, to go back to trying not to say that all periods are periods in transition, because yeah. we, that's obvious. But yeah. I always think that Wood, in a way, yes, he is kind of, well, he's in his own time, but he's also looking forward to um, a romantic, unlike Jones, who isn't personally identified with Stonehenge in any way. I no. mean, he's looking for his ideas there. Yeah. But Wood cares passionately for all of this stuff. I mean, he deeply emotionally feels it. And also, of course, we should say that he worked with his son. He didn't complete everything he intended for Bath. But after his death, yeah. his son built the crescent, yeah. which is to the circle. It's Stanton Drew to Stonehenge. It's the sun symbolised in the circus, yeah. the crescent moon. And again, crescents. Nobody had built a crescent before. No, well, that, that's right. I mean, the son, curiously enough, actually is the assistant on the survey. So he went with his father to, to measure it, measure Stonehenge. So the two of them had worked together and Wood the son is very much brought up in the, the mould of Wood the elder. So it's reasonable to suppose that the crescent is an idea that both of them shared. Certainly the son finishes off the, the circus, the ground plan is laid out at the time of John Wood the Elder's death. So it's definitely the Elder's work, but nonetheless the actual um, building itself is finished by the sun. So the two work closely together and those forms are imagined through the work of both of them as a, as a partnership in the same kind of way that Jones and uh, Webb work together very closely. And if you walk up from the circus up Gay Street yeah. to the Crescent, it's lovely because Wood Jr., I think it's not fanciful to see him very piously and affectionately finishing his father's work. But of course, he's he's another generation. So the detailing is very yeah. different. And it has these very, it's the crescent has done in the Ionic order, which is associated with the moon. Yes. So the whole thing, it's, it's a very charming, delicate, metaphorical building. And it's also, I think it's a great lesson to people who laugh off people like Geoffrey of Monmouth, because mm. <laughs> um, to me, what I love is that Wood thinks that 
Bath is a city that is built as an allegory of the universe, mm. which seems bizarre and mad. Mm. By the time he's finished with it, it is. Mm. It's exactly what he believed it was before mm. he started. It's extraordinary. Yes, and I mean, I, I, I'd like to think that its authenticity is actually achieved and that part of its charm and part of the reason why people today regard it with such affection is that some of this past and some of the kind of hidden mythology is is being transmitted still and that people especially when they're told about it suddenly understand there's a whole dimension to it which is rich and gives it a, a history albeit a, maybe a false one but nonetheless a, a local history as well one tied to local monuments but I think particularly successful is the sequence from one space to the other the square going up the hill to the circus and then from the circus into the crescent where it opens out and embraces the landscape and the views and I think also Bath and Peter Smithson the architect the brutalist architect who taught at Bath University for many years you know talked about walks within the walls and that the idea and he did a guidebook with uh, series of walks to this effect where you were meant to go round and enjoy the architecture as you went through the city but uh, you would always get glimpses as in Rome you'd get glimpses of the hills around the valley that the city exists in so that kind of idea is something that we can still appreciate very much today absolutely and of course it proved very popular and successful as you were saying earlier on Edinburgh the new town yeah and any sort of seaside resort like Ramsgate which had any pretensions to elegance had to have yes. at least a crescent that's right and I think the other thing as we sort of move towards the end of our discussion and how Stonehenge and the idea of the circus and the circle continue is all the way through to Milton Keynes, home of the ultimate circus, the roundabout, <laughs> um, and based on Californian <laughs> principles of town planning. Yes. But there too, um, these very young architects, if you look at their drawings from the 1970s, they're like the kind of covers of a concept album. And they originally, they wanted to lay the whole thing out on, on ley lines, but they were <laughs> held back by... Um, older people. But there is still, you know, there's Midsummer Avenue mm. and the shopping centre in Milton Keynes is aligned with the Midsummer Sunset. So I think the way in which Stonehenge underlies the built environment in this country still mm. is absolutely astonishing. It, and so it, few it people realise. Well, that's that's right. And I mean, I, certainly when I first understood what uh, the influence that Stonehenge had, I was, uh, was uh, astounded. And I think uh, it is amazing that people should know more about it, but um, they are always very impressed when actually this is outlined. So um, it's a rather sort of hidden side, something so fundamental to the English psyche. We, we pride ourselves in the invention of the picturesque town in Bath, a Georgian town, but at the same time uh, don't understand that it's actually related to an ancient monument. And it's all underneath our feet. Yes. <laughs> Next time I'm going to be joined by Kate Bennett and we'll be talking about two of the most important antiquaries who looked at Stonehenge, John Aubrey and William Stukeley. And if you want to know more about the history of Stonehenge, you can look at my book, Stonehenge, which was published in 2008 when it was the first monograph on Stonehenge ever to be written by a woman. <laughs>